Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, April 14th, 2018, in celebration of Palm Sunday, Pastor Jeff Stevens' sermon, Terms of Love, will be taught from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. We hope you enjoy. This message today, um, I'll just apologize in advance <laughs> because I, I'm going to have a lot of passion on this one <laughs> because this is the triumphant entry of our Savior. So let's just pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all those whom you have um, drawn here. Lord, that you have prompted our hearts to be here to worship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And even those, Lord, who have come uh, searching uh, for healing or searching for help or searching for something, Lord, I pray that your word today would give them that healing, that, uh, Lord, that you would take the person who is lost and make them found that you would take the person who is living a life in Christ of mediocrity and cause them to pursue your holiness. Lord, those who are of us who are filled with anger or bitterness or anxiety, would you, Lord, bring us your peace that surpasses all understanding. May we get this, Lord, today in this wonderful view of Christ and his view uh, that he's going to explain to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Wow. Uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, going back over the last several weeks and, and reading Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem um, has just been overwhelming to me. And I keyed in, in particular, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44 today. And I'm just going to cover four verses. Um, so rather than going with the traditional explanation of uh, the donkey or the colt and the laying down of the palm branches and all those things, I really want to just focus today on why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem. And to understand it is to understand our sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And to understand the character of his heart his bride, the church. In fact, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> if someone were to come to me and say, Jeff, I hate your wife, I'd have a real big struggle with that. Most of my life growing up as a Christian, as an adult, because I was the only Christian in my family in the early years of my faith, my father would repeat to me over and over and over again his hatred of the church. And I could never understand how someone could hate the church. It's, it's like going to Christ and saying, I hate your bride. And I just couldn't get my head around that. I asked him over and over and over again, why he hated the church. And how could you hate something, Dad, that I love so, so much? And he would never answer that question. He would just walk away. 
Later, as I became a, a rotating pastor and, and preacher in the pulpit of our last church in San Diego, every time I was up to preach, I would reach out, I would call my father, I'd call my mother, and I would invite them to come in here. Would you like to come and hear your, your son preach? Oh, we're busy. Oh, we're this. Oh, we're that. Or even sometimes it would go back to that message of, son, you know how much I dislike and hate the church. I invited him over and over again until one day he finally came. Made the long drive. It was about a two-hour drive for him. And he sat in the very back row. I'll never forget. It would be like the back row here on this aisle in the very back. And he sat there and he listened. And he listened. And at the time that it was over, after people had come and shook my hand and said, thank you for the message, and, and most people were kind. Not everyone's kind, you know, but the, most, <laughs> most people were kind. And, and then he waited for it to clear, and then I watched my dad walk down. And as he got closer, I could see that there were tears streaming down his cheeks. And he said, son, that was beautiful. He says, I know I've hated the church for so long. He says, but do you know that, you know that Baptist church that your sister now goes to? He says, son, do you think that the Baptists would let me come back? His wrestling match with the church was in fact the hypocrisy of people. And as we grew in that understanding and, and we peeled it back, I could see why he would have such disdain. As one minister told him when his grandmother, my great-grandmother, was passing, it's too bad that she's going to die a Baptist because we won't see her in the kingdom of heaven. And then the Lutheran pastor from where she grew up came and visited and said, it's too bad that she's going to die a Baptist and we won't see her in the kingdom of heaven. I hope what you walk away today is you're going to hear a message of the gospel. You're going to hear a message of gospel revival. And I have been praying earnestly that he causes an awakening here and what God is going to do through the power of His Word, His very Gospel. His, as I've titled this message, His Terms of Peace. I know that even in the Great Awakening that took place in 1740, the Great Awakening as they call it, there was two brothers and one of their closest friends, John and Charles Wesley, with their dear brother and friend, George Whitfield, These are the founders of the Methodist Church. And this awakening, this revival that was unbeknownst to them, they were just gathering people and then more and more people started to come and hear it. And then a chant started amongst the audience. Remember, it's 1740, so they don't have a microphone. It's very difficult to project to everyone. 
But the audience, the congregation there that came started chanting Whitfield, 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 to where finally George Whitfield got up and the crowd celebrates. And Whitfield, taking the moment, the energy that was going on in this thing, starts this thing, and I'm just paraphrasing. He says, will there be Baptists in the kingdom of heaven? To which the audience all unanimously yelled, no. He says, will there be Presbyterians in the kingdom of heaven? No. And then this great thing, he stands up there and says, will there be Methodists in the kingdom of heaven? No, 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 no. And he says, for there will be nobody in the kingdom of heaven except for those who have believed in the person of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ that has set them free. It is not about your denomination. It's not about your Highlands non-denomination. It's about Christ and about Christ alone. When we start to see and realize this, we know that God sets us free from the consequences of our sin, but he cleanses right here, right now, right this moment. The God who came and dwelt among us, who lived his life, who died, who was crucified, who was buried, who rose again. And on 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he sits today at the right hand of God the Father as your advocate for those who believe in him. So let's start in Luke 19, 41 through 44. I want you to picture this scene. He stands before the city, the city of Jerusalem, the city that David built, walls 150 feet high, the temple on the very top, this incredible city. He stands before the city as a king, a king of kings who is in a matter of days going to be crucified by the very people that just cried out, Hosanna. This Hosanna, as Brendan eloquently put it, is an adoration of praise and joy. It literally means salvation is here or save us now. You would think that what they were chanting was the right thing. Our Savior has come and He's going to set us free. But listen to what He says. Verse 41, And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did did not know the time of your visitation. My goal here today is to set this four verses in three logical levels. The bottom level, or the verses 44 and below, right, the 43 and 44 is this, is that the bottom level, level is Jerusalem's ignorance. In verse 44, they are ignorant of the time of their visitation. 
And verse 42, they are ignorant of the things that make for peace. The second level is based on the first. Is that terrible judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. The city itself will be leveled and its people will be dashed to the ground in verses 43 and 44. And the third level we'll discuss is Jesus' response to all of this. He weeps. He weeps and he expresses his willingness to make peace if they would but acknowledge the terms of peace. So our point one today, if you're taking notes along with it, is the ignorance of Jerusalem. The ignorance of Jerusalem. I want, first of all, the ignorance of Jerusalem is the judgment is coming upon Jerusalem, as it's stated in verse 44. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So let's talk a little about what does he mean by visitation? You see, in the Old Testament term, visitation was used for God's coming to his people. Either to judge them or to save them. For an example, we see in Isaiah 29, verses 5 and 6, it says, But the multitude of the foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chafe. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and flame and the flaming of a devouring fire. <clears throat> we must never forget that our God is, in fact, a consuming fire. Anything that is not holy. The author of Hebrews says that we are to pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the face of God. The requirement to enter into his presence is holiness, it's perfection. If there is no perfection, the wrath of God will be poured out on the object that stands before it. Thanks be to God that we enter in his holiness through his righteousness. Please don't enter into the kingdom of heaven on your merit, but on the merit of Christ. So that first example is a visitation for judgment. The second one is in uh, Genesis 50, verse 24, where Joseph is talking to his brothers. And he says, uh, in 50, 24, he says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is a visitation that God's going to make of salvation. When we look at the two places in this term of visitation in Luke 19, right? <clears throat> We've already read verse 44, but skipping to Luke 1:68, when he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Luke 7, 16 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Therefore, when Jesus says to Jerusalem, You did not know the time of your visitation, he means you did not know that my coming to you is the coming of God for redemption 
and your salvation. Jerusalem was ignorant that the time in which it lived was absolutely a unique period of time. God, in Jesus Christ, had come into the world to announce his kingship and to gather loyal subjects that would follow him in a new community. Never before had had he come to mankind in this way. And never again would he approach the world like this. You see, the time was very unique, and the chosen people were by and large obvious of how threatening the days were. Luke 12, 54 through 56 says, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So it begs the question of why were they ignorant? It's an important question for us to answer. Why does Jerusalem, why do some people today not know the time of Christ's visitation. It's so important to answer because someone might be out there saying, how can God destroy for not, for a people for not knowing? <clears throat> how can you be held responsible for what you are ignorant of? And it's important to answer, too, because there are, of course, many people today who think they know what they need, but in fact do not have true knowledge. My mother, who's still alive, my father passed away about two years ago, but my mother, who's still alive, continues to tell me that her good will outweigh her bad. This is just simply not true. <coughs> They won't do that. So why did Jerusalem not know that the king had come? I want you to look at the clue in verse 42. Jesus said, would that even today you knew, that word knew, the things that make for peace. There's another place in Luke where these terms translated things that make for peace occur, namely in the parable of Luke. In Luke chapter 14, 31, it says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not while the other is yet <clears throat> a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He asks for terms of peace. We see this take place. When he says Jerusalem does not know the terms of peace, he does not mean he never told them. Jesus has already cried out. Luke 13, 34 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, there's the answer. The terms of peace had been spelled out again and again as affectionately, thank you, Josiah, had been spelled out again and again as affectionately and as firmly as a hen goes after her chicks to protect them. You see, Jerusalem knew the terms of peace, but they simply rejected them. The same is true about their time of their visitation. Had they not been told and shown that the king had come, they indeed, of course, have Look at it in Luke 17, in verse 20, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus went a long way to clarify that the current expectations for a political warrior or Messiah were very misguided. The king and his kingdom had already arrived. It was manifest in the power of Jesus' words and his deeds. You look at places like Luke, in Luke 11, verse 20, it says, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When you start to understand that he tells them directly, how many demons did Jesus cast out in front of people? Hundreds. If you've seen him cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of God has come. So do they then not know the time of their visitation? (coughs) Yes. Yes, they do know it. They know they have been visited, and they know the terms that are for peace. When Jesus says, oh, that today you knew the terms of peace, he uses the word know or knew. And he uses it in a different sense, very common in the Bible. Such as in Matthew 7, 22, when Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Most frightening verse in Scripture. Because these are church people. Jesus knows all the facts that there are to know about every man. What it means here is I never approved you. I never approved you. And the reason why he didn't approve them is because they did not accept the terms of peace. He acknowledges your rightness. He's saying, I never accepted your work. That's the sense in which no or new is used here. Luke 19 in both verses 42 and 44 says this, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. And verse 44, and tear down and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, that you know, knew the terms of peace means, oh, that you approved of my terms. That you acknowledged their rightness, that you acknowledged and accepted them into your life as to what governs your very conduct. So the reason Jerusalem is guilty and liable to judgment is not because it never heard God's visit, heard God's uh, visitation or his terms of peace, but because to use Paul's words, the people suppressed the truth. They replaced the truth with a lie. Our second point is the present and coming judgment. This establishes an urgency. Why did Jerusalem reject the king's terms of peace? The answer in verse 42 is given. Oh, that you knew the terms of peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, it's all over for Jerusalem. It's done. They rejected. They did not accept the terms of peace. And one of the main reasons why Jesus is weeping over the city is because they have not accepted the terms of peace. And in his prophecy, they will all be wiped out. Matthew 23, 28 says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Right? Sometimes people put on their Sunday best, but their Monday through Saturday is a mess. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says to Jerusalem in this last week, how often would I have gathered your children together, but you would not. He says, behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. God has forsaken Jerusalem and given them up to their own sin. And I don't want you to think that it's just Jerusalem. It may in fact be some of you who are here today. I was recently asked by one person, Jeff, is it too late? Not yet, but it's coming. When Jesus Christ returns, his second coming, he's not coming for salvation. He's coming for judgment. We've told you in the last weeks as we went through 2 Timothy, his imminent return is just that, it's imminent. And who knows if today's the day that you will go to the Lord rather than the Lord coming to you. Are you right with God? And these terms of peace. You see, for many people, they're irreparably blind to the truth. Listen to how it's said in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for, your, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the truce, pity, peace offering, he reveals it to them. Or as he tells us, he tells us in John 6, 45, he says, he says uh, no man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him unto me. <coughs> we are desperately dependent upon God as the primary causality of our salvation. For those who think they've pulled themselves up there by their bootstraps, I ask you, I beg you to rethink it. Have I truly accepted the terms of peace? Because the terms of peace are trusting and believing in a sovereign God, the King of Kings, who has made his offer of peace. Have you accepted the wrong thing? and not giving glory to the one who made it. You see, Jesus reveals to us here something very deep about Jesus' heart. On the one hand, he expresses his grief that Jerusalem rejected his peace, his peace proposal. He weeps and he cries out, oh, that you knew the terms of peace. But in the same breath, he bows before the sovereign decree, that thing that God spoke into existence before the foundation of the world, his Father in heaven, God has hidden these things from their eyes. You see, the divine mind is not simple. It's very complex. With Jesus, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Viewing reality in one set of relationships, God not willing that any perish, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He is grieved at the sin and the destruction that will come upon them in their disbelief. For Jerusalem, the historical form of that judgment came in 70 A.D., this is the second logical level in our text. It describes in verse 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And so on. You see, 40 years later, the prophecy came true and the Roman army besieged Jerusalem and conquered it and leveled the temple to the ground. I say this is the historical form of God's judgment upon Jerusalem because that destruction of a city and even the loss of life in physical death is not the end. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning of the judgment that will in fact come. No one in the Bible warned of hell as often or as vividly as Jesus did. And one of those warnings came to Jerusalem a few days just after the triumphal entry. 
Look at it in Matthew 23, 31 through 36. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, to the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Wow. Do you think Jesus is laying out truth? You see, because Jesus is coming back, and i got to tell you, as brothers and sisters, hallelujah. But for those of you who have not accepted the terms of peace, woe be to you. The hen with outspread and beckoning wings has become a roaring lion at this point. There is such a thing as too late in dealing with God. He may stretch out his wings to you and beckon you again and again to take refuge in his mercy. But there will come a point when the beckoning ceases and the sentence will be passed and it will be too late. The third point, final point, accept God's terms of peace. Now that I've covered all that very bleak and sober and fearful part, let's look at the third logical level in our text and conclude with words of hope. Luke did not record this text for us just to inform us about Jerusalem's doom, but more importantly to encourage us that Jesus Christ is always eager and willing to make peace with anyone who will accept the terms of peace he offers. He wept that day saying, oh that today you knew the terms of peace. Oh that today you would approve and accept as the charter of your life Jesus' terms of peace. You see, after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and returned to his Father in heaven, he continued to his peace offer to the world through his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's just another way of saying, oh, that you would accept God's terms of peace. You see, that's the main message of Palm Sunday. The king has come to his rebellious subjects and he has offered peace. He's offered peace terms while the time lasts before he comes 
again. The terms of peace are so simple. Will you lay down your arms, especially the weapons of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency? Will you admit your defeat? Will you accept your full free pardon, total amnesty, and swear your allegiance to the new king in your life? Will you do that? If you're uncertain, will you do it again? You see, there's nothing more satisfying in all the world than to be believing subject of a king like Jesus. You can picture him riding towards Jerusalem, this rebellious city, a multitude of praises upon him. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He knows the praise is shallow. He knows that in a few days it will vanish. But does he rebuke them? No. He defends them against the criticism of the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He knew the days are numbered. He knows that even if no one praises him, the rest of his creation will. My dad, who finally came to church, I don't know where my dad is today. I don't know if he accepted the true terms of peace. He was diagnosed months later with Alzheimer's. And as I continued to read and to share the gospel with him, even though oftentimes he would interrupt me and say, can you tell me once again who you are? I said, I'm an ambassador. I'm an ambassador of Christ sent here to give you a message from God. Will you look to Jesus and live? I trust in my king. I trust in the leaders of my church, the rulers and the defenders of my faith. Our terms for peace are found in Christ and in Christ alone. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that we can come and worship you freely. But I pray now that your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts. That if our life is mediocre in our faith, would you set us on fire to follow you? Would you fill us with your grace, your peace, and your mercy? Would you cause us to desire to live a life of holiness under the eyes of God? May we live our life knowing that we have been saved by the blood of Christ and by Christ alone. Amen. May the God who created you just shine his light upon you. May you live your life to the glory of him who offered you these terms of peace. And may you be found holy and blameless because of his works, his righteousness that has set you free from the consequences of sin and that you would live with him for all eternity. Would you please today, I'm going to pray because there may be people in this room that may feel that they're, they don't know this Jesus. I just want to pray that you would know this Jesus. And then when we're done, 
There's a whole prayer team down here that's here to pray with you. And any one of the pastors or elders, right? You know, there's Dan over there. There's, uh, there's Doug right here. Any one of these people. If you just find someone and just come to them and tell them that you want to live your life for Christ. And you need prayer. You need help. You need us to come alongside you to encourage you and empower you to share the gospel with the people around here. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for your offer of terms of peace. I pray, Lord, that we would accept those terms and that we would lay down our armaments of self and that we would depend and trust in you through Christ alone. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.